Okay, we are moving right along. If you're just joining us for the first time or if it's been a while since you've been with us here at Cedar Street, we are in a sermon series entitled Putting Feet to Our Faith. Putting Feet to Our Faith. And this is the study of the book of James. And we've said it every week and I'm going to continue to say it every week because I really believe this with all of my heart. Everything that James says in this entire letter is simple, but it isn't easy. It's simple, but it's not easy as much things with a Christian faith often teaches us in the scriptures. And we're in chapter two. Today, we're going to be in verses 14 through 26. And we spent each of the last two weeks together talking about the sin of favoritism and then how it is we break the law of love when we play favorites. Well, now James is going to go even deeper. He's going to cut deep straight to the heart of men and women with this passage here today as we're looking at verses 14 through 26 And the title of our message here today is The Case for a Working Faith. The Case for a Working Faith. So, as we begin our time together, I want to prime your hearts and your minds with something to think about. Okay, here's what I want us to think about here this morning. If a television show documented your life for one year, how would the viewers know that you are a Christian? Think about this for a minute. If if you were the star of a reality TV show for one year, and from morning till night, cameras followed you and they watched your life, how is it that they would know that you are in fact a Christian? As I pose this question to you, I'm mindful of a movie that I watched, I think it was, came out in 1999 called Ed TV. I don't know if anybody remembers Ed TV, it didn't really make a lot of money in the box office and I probably made more money at Blockbuster Video than it did at the movie theater. But Ed TV was uh, starring Matthew McConaughey, now the ladies are sorry they missed watching Ed TV. All right, Matthew McConaughey was a, uh, he actually worked a blockbuster video employee who was chosen to have his life put on TV for an entire year. The, the character that he played is a gentleman by the name of Ed Percurdy. And Ed Percurdy was just this normal guy from Texas who had moved to San Francisco and he had kind of a strange family, broken family. He had a, a stepdad and he had a couple of um, step-siblings. And, and basically as the movie starts and they choose him to be the main character in this movie, his entire family in front of the camera puts on a front. All right, his mom starts acting like June Cleaver, all right, and everyone acts like everything's perfect, but what happens? Over the course of time, throughout that year, eventually the truth comes out. The skeletons come out of the closet, and all of America in this movie has a chance to see who this family really is because over the course of time, I really believe this with all my heart, who we really are will always come out eventually. And it will come out in the way that we act. Our actions are incredibly important. In fact, I'm I'm reminded of this passage in the Gospels in Luke chapter 6, verse 44, as Jesus says, Each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. This means if we're a Christian tree, eventually you're going to bear Christian fruit. And and James pulls no punches as we walk through James chapter 2. He's going to talk about how cheap talk really is and how it is, in fact, that our actions will eventually bear that fruit. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I believe. In 2017, in this particular pocket of the country that we call the Bible Belt, which, by the way, I'm very grateful for and I'm excited to raise my daughter in, this is still a pocket of the country where it is so easy to say you're a Christian. In fact, when I often ask people, are you a believer? Their response tells me an awful lot. 
In fact, I get nervous when their response is to immediately tell me something that they did in the past instead of something that they're doing in the present. I'll tell you what I mean. I'll say, oh, you're a Christian? They say, yeah. And they'll tell you about the church their mama raised them in. Or I say, are you a Christian? They'll say, yeah. Back at camp, I prayed Jesus to come into my heart when I was 10 years old. And I'll say, you're a Christian? They say, yeah, I listen to his radio. I love Chris Tomlin. I love Toby Mac. And they'll tell me all these different things. And none of those things are bad. Praise God that you were raised in a Christian church by your mama, your daddy, your grandparents, whoever the case may be. One of the greatest quotes I ever heard was from Miss Sarah O'Brien. She said, I raised my children on drugs. I drugged them to church. (laughs) Fantastic. Praise God for that. However, whether it is that you were raised in church, went to camp and made a profession of faith, or you listen to Christian radio, if I have to look to those things to find out that you're a Christian, then maybe you're not. Maybe your heart's never changed because the actions of your life will show where your heart really is. And if your actions do not match the actions of Jesus Christ, James says we have a faith that is dead to God. So what's the big idea? Let me just take what I just said and put it in one sentence for our hearts and our minds to be prepared to walk into this passage together. Our big idea is this. If we only express our belief in words but never demonstrate those belief in works, we have a faith that's dead to God. Let me say that again. If we only express our belief in words, but never demonstrate those beliefs in works, we have a faith that's dead to God. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of James. Again, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you do not have a Bible with you, feel free to grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be in page 1200 exactly in your Pew Bibles. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, we're in James chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 14 through 26. Hear the word of our Lord, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that god is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by one by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we thank you and praise you for this day. And Father, I confess to you this is a very heavy doctrine. And it is one that could be easily misunderstood. 
Help us to tread water carefully as we walk through this passage. I pray that you would anoint my tongue, that the words and the honor and the glory would be yours, for I know that it is your word and not mine that will not return void. Be with us. Open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of this word and, Father, to respond to it in repentance and faith and in works that show the faith that we truly have. Be with us at this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Well, as I was praying through this passage this week and beginning to prepare the message, I noticed something unique. I noticed as I read, starting in verse 14 on through verse 26, that James seemed to be presenting this idea of faith without works, almost like he was attacking a defendant in a court case. And so I thought, well, let's look at it that way. And that's why the title of our message is The Case for a Working Faith, because I want to look at this as we're, as we're stepping into a courtroom and we're watching James as the plaintiff attack this idea of the defendant that you can have a faith apart from works. And so, again, one of my favorite books, by the way, that really changed my life when I first became a Christian was written by Lee Strobel. It was The Case for Faith. So I'm going to change the title and say today is The Case for a Working Faith. Okay, and the first thing that I want to take a look at here, number one, I want us to look at the opening statement in the case for a working faith. Again, number one, the opening statement in a case for the working faith. Let's look at verses 14 through 17 together. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, so picture you're in a courtroom. James is making his opening statement to the jury. And the defendant who is sitting on the other side of the courtroom is basically trying to make the statement that you can have faith completely separate from works. And as the plaintiff, here's what James is saying, absolutely not. You cannot have faith apart from works because if you have faith, works are going to be the proof of that. And he begins to walk through example by example. Now, first, I think it's important that we define what works is. All right, if James were to elaborate in the court of law, I think he would tell the jury that they would understand better what works are so they could understand how they can't be separated from faith. So what do I mean when I say the word works? What is a work? Well, I think the best way to define work would simply be to say it is an action, deed, or accomplishment that reflects the nature or commands of Christ. Let me say that again. If I had to define the word works in this particular passage, I would say it's an action, it's a deed, or it's an accomplishment that reflects the nature or commands of Christ. It's something we do not to be saved, but to show that we are saved. It's something that we do to reflect Christ because we already have Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. That is work. Now, let me clarify one thing, because over the course of the the history of our church, not just Cedar Street Baptist Church, capital C Church, the 2,000 years that church has been here, this particular doctrine has been overly abused and misunderstood, because here's what James is not saying. He is not denying the doctrine that we hold dear, which is justification by grace through faith. All right, being justified means that you're declared innocent before a holy God. 
That happened because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not made innocent, and we are not saved by anything other than grace through faith in what Jesus did because we could not do what he did. And what he did was live perfectly the way we should have lived, died sacrificially the punishment we deserved, and rose from the dead three days later, making a way from death to life. So we're saved by grace through faith apart from works. Let's get that clear. That's not what James is attacking. And if you read this passage at face value, you could be misunderstood. All right? In fact, if we look in church history, one of the forefathers of our our faith of the Reformation is Martin Luther, the great German monk. And he was the one who sparked the fire for the Reformation in 16th century England. And when he read this passage, he misunderstood it. In fact, he went on a rampage trying to get the book of James out of the canon of Scripture. He didn't want James to be included in the Bible because he thought this taught against what Paul taught in the New Testament about justification by grace through faith. But if you look between the lines and you read closely to what James is saying, he's not saying you're saved by works. He's saying if you are saved, your works are what's going to prove it over the course of time. So now that we've made that clear, make sure that we don't have many misunderstanding. Let's look at the illustration that he uses in verses 14 through 17. He basically says, if you come across a brother or a sister who's poorly clothed and lacking in food, and you look at them and say, go in peace, be warmed and well filled. And they go on their way and and you offer them all these wonderful words but you don't put your feet to the street and do what you can to put food in their stomachs. You know what God is saying? you got a faith that's dead. Who cares what you believe if you're not going to do what Jesus does? Words are cheap and actions are not. And, and God shows through His Son, Jesus Christ, oh, how He cares about the less fortunate. I want to draw your attention. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. All right, this is an extended passage of Scripture that I want to show to illustrate how much God cares about this. All right, Matthew chapter 25. And as you're turning, I want to set the scene for you, okay? This is towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're getting a glimpse of the final judgment that will happen one day when we stand before the Lord. And basically what happens is Jesus is saying He's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are going to go on the right And the goats are going to go on the left. The sheep are truly the people of God. And the goats were the ones who thought they were the people of God, who claimed to be the people of God, but had nothing to do with God. And how Jesus is going to separate them is by their works. All right? So look with me at the very beginning here. In Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to start with verses 34 through 40. All right? So he's looking at his sheep. His sheep on the right. These are the true Christians. Here's what he says. Matthew 25, 34 through 40. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That's the good news. They didn't even realize 
They were doing the Lord's work. It was natural for them to do this because they had the Spirit of God in them and they were doing the works of God that God in His Spirit desired for them to do. That's the good news. Now, as He has the sheep on the right, He separates the goats to the left. And if you look further in this passage, again, still in Matthew 25, now verses 41 through 46, this hurts. Starting in verse 41. Then he, meaning Jesus, will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So he's separating the righteous from the non-righteous, and he doesn't make a beeline to their faith by acknowledging intellectual facts. He looks at their works and says, you did this, and you did not do this. You're, You're of me, and you're not of me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was naked, you left me naked. The works are what showed their righteousness. Again, it did not earn their righteousness. It showed, in fact, that they were either righteous or they weren't. And by the way, I do want to say that uh, this also should show us that God cares deeply about the spiritual things of life, but He also cares about the physical. In fact, if you look in the Gospels, you'll see over and over, Jesus always meets a physical need before He addresses the spiritual need. Sometimes we can over-spiritualize things and we can make it so spiritual that we forget that sometimes people are actually hungry. They need food. All right, I think about Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers in England. Here's what he said. If you want to give a hungry man a Bible track, wrap it up in a sandwich. That's good advice. You want to feed somebody the gospel. If they're hungry, feed them food and then feed them the food that they can eat that they'll never be hungry again, the word of God. We shouldn't try to separate those things, spiritual and physical. God cares about them both, and if we're truly children of God, we're going to deal with them both. So number one, that's the opening statement in the case for a working faith. So as we continue in that mental picture of the court case, okay, James has made his opening statement. He's used a wonderful example. And now number two, let's look at the argument in the case for a working faith, okay? We're going to get drilled right down to the main issue, verses 18 through 20. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? All right, so here's what's happening. James is looking right at the defendant the one who would say that faith and works should be completely separate. I'm saved by my faith. I don't need my works. And James saying, by my faith, I will show you my faith by my works. He attacks the main theological issue, separating faith and works. All right. The defendant would say, separate those faith and works because our beliefs should be more important than our actions. And James is saying, you're making an unbelievably wrong distinction here. All right. So let me say what James is not doing. 
And then let me say what James is doing as he presents this argument. First, what James is not doing. James is not saying that our beliefs are not important. He's also not saying that our theology is not important. I'll tell you something that drives me crazy. And I know why people say this, and I think they have a good heart or a good intention when they say this. But I remember one time I was called to preach a revival at a small church not too far from here. And the pastor came to me and said, he came to me at the Guido Bible College to ask me to preach the revival. So he was coming into the classroom, and so that's the context by which he was saying this. But he came to me and he said, he said, can you preach revival at my church next week? I said, I sure can. He said, good. Don't teach any theology. Just preach Jesus. Well, guess what? That sounds really good on the outside, right? What he's saying is basically don't cloud people's heads with all these academic ideas of the Bible. Just preach him Jesus. Here's the problem. Who's Jesus? If I asked you who Jesus is, you'd say, well, he's the son of God. Well, what does the son of God mean? Well, if you look in the scriptures, it teaches that he's fully God and fully man. So you're telling me this person, son of God, fully God, fully man, lived for us, died for us. Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Guess what? Ding, da, da, ding, ding, ding. You just did theology. You cannot not have theology as a Christian. The case is, or do you have a good theology that lines up with the Bible or a bad theology that doesn't? Every one of you in this room, down to the youngest one who has heard the name of Jesus, you have a theology. Your theology is your understanding of who God is. And James, in this passage, is not saying theology is bad. He's saying theology apart from works is useless. You can believe all you want up here, but if it doesn't lead to down here and here, then you're wasting God's time. That's what he's trying to say. All right, so he's not saying that theology is not important. What he is saying is that, that uh, having a correct theology should lead to correct actions. In fact, as one Christian writer put it, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. I love that. Now, I want us to think for just a moment. My first week here as pastor, my first week here, I tried to cast that vision for a new mission statement. That Cedar Street Baptist Church would be a place where heads, hearts, and hands are being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our mission statement. And why is it why I was so intentional in the first message to do that? Not because it looks cute and pretty on a brochure or a business card, but because I want us to see that the head's important. The reason I'm preaching God's word right now is I want our minds to think rightly about his word. But if it stops right there, we have a faith that is dead. It's dead. And trust me when I say there are churches all over this world that are gathering at this hour of worship and they're right in all of their theology. They understand Jesus. They understand the Holy Spirit. They understand God the Father. They understand justification by grace through faith. They sing all the right hymns and then they go home and they wait till next Sunday to open their Bibles again and their lives are not changed and they have a faith that is absolutely dead. And I'm not interested in being a part of a church that is that way. And I've experienced, as the youth pastor of this church, the fact that this is not that type of church. That I've seen our feet hit the streets. I love every time I walk into the the fellowship hall and I see that big flag hanging over the, the front there by the kitchen that says, Baptist Mission. Emphasis on the word mission. All right? It has to go from our head to our heart. When we learn the Bible, it's in our head. 
When it moves to our heart, it changes who we are. God, God's desire for you is that you would begin to desire the things of God. You would start to think the thoughts of Jesus. You would start to have the desires of Jesus. And then eventually, moving to the hands, you would start doing the actions of Jesus. Head, heart, hand. And what the defendant in this case would say is, I got it all up here. To which James says, okay, now bring it down here and bring it out here. Show me your works. If you have the faith up here, it will come out here. Or you don't have it up here. And if you have it up here, it's useless. Because it's not changing you and it's not changing anybody else for the kingdom of God. That's the argument in the case for a working faith. And that moves us on to number three. The evidence in the case for a working faith. Verses 21 through 25. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Real quickly, again, our picture's still in that courtroom. All right, James has made his opening statement. Then he's made his argument. Now he's calling two witnesses to the stand. And the first of those two witnesses is Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. All right, the father of nations, the one that God made a covenant with that led to the Messiah coming, the one in many ways we can look as the ultimate patriarch of our faith. He calls Abraham to the stand. And here's what happens. We have to go back and understand back in Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to run through this real quick. In Genesis 15, 5 through 6, God was speaking to Abraham and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, shall, So shall your offspring be. And verse 6 says, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Basically, he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a nation and a nation so great that you won't even be able to count the people in this nation because there'll be as many as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand at the beach. And Abraham's sitting there as an old man saying, I don't even have a child, but I believe you. And God says, because you believe me, it is credited to you as righteousness. So right there, we see righteousness by faith alone. However, we also see that Abraham put his feet to his faith. And what happened? Later in Genesis chapter 22, we see this unbelievable story that anybody who's a parent or grandparent in this room, it's almost unconscionable for you to think about this. Abraham took his son Isaac, that promised child that was given to him in his old age. He walked him up a mountain. He tied him to a bunch of logs and he was getting ready with his knife to sacrifice his own son because of his faith. And I believe the angel of the Lord who stopped him from doing that waited until he knew that he was about to drop the hammer. Abraham was not up there saying, you can stop me at any time, Lord. No, when he was finally ready is when the angel of the Lord said, no, you don't sacrifice your son. I'm going to sacrifice mine. That's faith with works. Now, if that first witness doesn't do anything for you, you may say, well, Abraham's the patriarch. I'm just a, an average person in, in Metter, Georgia. I don't measure up to Abraham, so how can I possibly have works that match my faith to that degree? To which I would say, good, James has another witness. 
At this time, we call Rahab the prostitute to the stand, the lowest of the low in Jewish times. And as we look at the book of Joshua, we see that Rahab, a prostitute and a Gentile, offers her home up to these Jewish spies who are spying out this land of Canaan, this promised land of milk and honey, and they're about to storm in there and take down the walls of Jericho, and their lives are on the line, and Rahab has faith. How do we know she has faith? Well, stop and think. In those times, if she was a prostitute, she would have had clients come into her house who were merchants all over the area, and those merchants would have told her stories about what God had done, primarily the stories of the Exodus. She would have heard about a God who parted the Red Sea, a God who brought Israel across that dry land, and who covered the waters over all of the Egyptians who stormed after the Israelites. And she basically says that she believed. In fact, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, she said, For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She's saying, Your God, He's real, and He's the true God. But not only did she have faith, she put her faith on the line. She hid the spies, she assisted in their escape, and she brilliantly advised their path into the hill country to secure their victory. She put herself in great danger because she had great faith, and her works proved her faith. So James puts Abraham on the stand, then he puts Rahab on the stand. We see these two testimonies prove one truth, one true God, faith in that one God, and works that prove that faith. Now, as we close... Number four, any court case has a final verdict. All right, the verdict in the case for a working faith, verse 26. He says one last time, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He's saying to the the judge and jury, I've made my final case, I step back, and now you have to make a decision for yourselves. And as any good lawyer would do, all right, he'd recap the whole case. The opening statement, he says, what good is it that you have faith without works? The argument, faith and works cannot be separated. Right beliefs lead to right actions. The evidence, Abraham and Rahab were people of faith and their works proved they had faith. And now the verdict, faith apart from works is dead. If your faith has no works, you have no faith. So let's sum this up. How do we sum all this up in one sentence? I would just say this. Faith in Jesus Christ will always be proven by doing the works of Jesus Christ or it is no faith at all. If you love Jesus and as a disciple you're following Jesus, you're going to do what Jesus does. Think about the disciples who were on boats fishing when when, when Jesus called them to follow him. All all they knew was being on the Sea of Galilee and pulling up the nets and going to the marketplace and selling fish and feeding their families. And they drop everything and they follow Jesus. So if they're not fishing and they're following him, guess what they're doing? They're doing what he does. When he prays, they ask him, teach us how to pray. When he heals, they say, this person over here also needs to be healed. When people are hungry, they feed. The part of the 5,000, he used the disciples and said, take those loaves and those fish, I'll multiply it, you feed them. Wherever Jesus was working, they were working because they had faith and their works proved their faith. But we don't live with Jesus at the time of the Gospels and the Sea of Galilee. So what does it look like for us? Well, I I just have a few things to consider. 
All right? Over the course of your life, I'm not saying every single day you're hair on fire for Jesus. I know we have lives. We we work nine to five jobs. We have certain responsibilities. But here's what I want to say. All right? What, What are some things on a daily basis that we could be doing? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe over the course of a year, you're going to be actively reading God's Word. I believe you're going to be praying publicly and privately to God. I believe you're going to be gathered in corporate worship and committed to a local body of believers at some church somewhere. I believe that you're going to be serving less fortunate physically and spiritually in some capacity. I believe you're going to be sharing the gospel. And I believe somehow, some way, each of us gifted differently that we're going to give sacrificially of our time, our talents, and our treasures. As God has gifted us, we're going to use those gifts for Him Because our faith in him says that we have works that will prove that faith. So you see, our takeaway for today, I just try to make it as practical as I can. What if we held our calendar in one hand and the Bible in the other, and we looked over the course of one year and said, do these two things match up? Does what I believe match up with what I do? And if it doesn't, this is a good time for us to have introspection and to pray to God and say, is my faith real? If somebody, again, let's go back to the very beginning as we close. If somebody was to watch you live your life for one calendar year, how would they know you're a Christian? Is it because of of a profession of faith that you made in the past? Is it because of the faith that your family uh, showed and raised you up to believe? All right, is it because of the music you listen to or the books that you read? Or is it because as they watch your life, they will actively see that you have a desire to do the things that God does. And you have a desire to be where God is. And by the way, none of us in this room is perfect. All of us in this room have probably squandered opportunities to serve God. All of us are probably quenching the Holy Spirit in some way where God is trying to tell us one thing and we're still forcing ourselves to do something else. We're all in this trying to figure all this out. I'm not saying that our lives from Monday through Friday are going to be so book solid in doing things that prove our faith. But what I am saying is over the general course of one year of your life, people should look at the things they do, that you do and they should know what you believe. As James does, I'll do the same. I'll rest my case. The case for a working faith. And as we enter into a time of invitation, if there's something that God has placed upon your heart, as His Word has been preached here today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you would know, looking at your life, that none of your works show that you are actually a Christian, as, as Brother Greg sang, just a moment of grace can change everything. Come and receive that grace. Give your heart to the Lord or renew your commitment to the Lord here today. The altars are open as we sing. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we love you, and we confess that our works cannot earn our salvation, but they are just proof of it. Father, forgive us where we have failed you. Forgive us where we are not doing what it is that you have called us to do, and help us to be more diligent about your business. Father, for any in this room whose heart has never truly been changed, I pray, Father, that you would remove the blinders that you would enable us to see that a faith without works is no faith at all, that it's dead to you. Let it be alive to you today, Father. Open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of your word, to respond to it in repentance and faith and works that bring you glory and us joy. In Jesus' name we pray.